Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Sam. Uh, for those who don't know me, I've been attending E3 for about nine years. I'm currently uh, filling in on occasion uh, with, with teaching, and I'm extremely thankful for this church. When I got here several years ago, I was very much a broken man who did not know that he was going to be broken even, even further, and E3 was my lifeline during that period of time. And I've been able to be involved in some unique ways, and one of the ways is to get up here occasionally and, and talk uh, to you guys uh, randomly about some things. And uh, though today's a little tough, uh, I have to follow uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash uh, today, which if I was, I mean, I should just let them keep going, but yet, you know, here we are. So uh, we'll just keep going with that. Um, I'm really thankful for the direction this church is headed, the, the wisdom of wise counsel, um, also the future with our new lead pastor, Scott, who we'll hear a video from in a little bit. And I don't see E3 as a church who's been through, uh, been burdened by difficulties, though we have certainly had our own. I see it as a place where those difficulties have fortified the faith of its membership and strengthened the deep roots of this community that were already there, just made them, just made them a little bit stronger. We are stronger, wiser, more hopeful as we head into the future that God has for us. Amen? Amen. Okay, pep talk over, right? All right, back to the, today's topic. We're going to be continuing with our series on the book of James. And today we're going to be talking about wisdom that works. Wisdom that works. So before we get started, let's revisit the book of James as a whole. The book of James is one of the most practical books in the Bible. And because of that, it actually can be a little polarizing. Uh, the Reformationist uh, Martin Luther, he hated this book <laughs> because he thought that uh, it was a little too focused on works and not quite enough grace and faith in there. But honestly, that type of conversation is for theology students in seminary between classes. I mean, right in the end, it is. People in the real world know that faith and works are not that inseparable. Real world faith is dictated by what you do, not just what you be- Leave. In fact, you really actually know somebody, what they believe based on what they do, right? That's honestly the only way that you truly know someone. You're like, well, that's what they did. That's who they are. That's what they believe. So Lori and Mike and Dan have done a really good job of kind of pulling the practicality out of this book. And honestly, it kind of teaches itself. The lessons are uh, hard to hear. Uh, they expose areas of our lives that really just need some work. No matter the lesson, it really always comes back to loving God and loving others. And we'll revisit that in a little bit as well. But the book of James is particularly interested in how you do that, how you do what you do, why you do the things that you do. And today isn't any different as we talk about the idea of wisdom. For that reason, I'm going to say something a little bit unusual. I consider the book of James to be like an honorary member of the books of the Bible that we would call wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs or the book of Ecclesiastes. It has that same that same feel to it. And here's why. It tells us practical ways to reflect the gospel in our lives and not in like a super spiritual way, just kind of like a, this is the way that good people live. Now, you know, run off and, and go do that. It's kind of the way that it talks about faith. Nothing fancy, just very nuts and bolts practical. I have a nine-year-old son named Mark. Here's a picture of, I think we took this a a month or so ago around Easter. Mark's obviously in the middle because the rest is ladies, me and Mark. Uh, we have a good time together, a lot of fun, grossing out the sisters and, and the wife um, as well. 
Um, but sometimes I have to correct Mark when he does things wrong, um, not because he's doing the wrong thing, but maybe how he does it, right? Kind of like the book of James is talking about it. And I say, to my, I say to Mark what my father used to say to me when I was Mark's age. I say, son, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. Have you ever heard that phrase? Okay. My dad used to say that to me all the time. I hated it. And guess what? I know this is shocking to you. Mark hates it. He hates it when I say that to him as well. But he understands why I say it. And God says the same thing to us. His message through the book of James is to apply practical, godly wisdom in everything that we do. Kind of like your mom telling you. My mom told me this too, recently, actually, uh, which I probably shouldn't tell you that. But kind of like your mom telling you, now, I've raised you better than that. You ever heard that? Yeah, when you're 45 and your mom's still telling you that, <laughs> something's up. So that's for another conversation. Buy me some coffee. I'll tell you about that one day. But because of that, it's easy to kind of feel shame when you read the book of James, you know, kind of like you're shuffling your feet, okay, mom, <laughs> or all right, dad, that kind of an idea, like you're getting called into the principal's office or something. But God's spirit lives within us and points us to what we know is right and the right way to live. Wisdom literature just puts it in writing and basically says, dude, you already know this. What are you doing? You know about this. You know about this. And that's because the book of James isn't shaming us. It's just pointing us back to what we already know to be true in our hearts. You know, at the core of this idea of wisdom in the book of James and in the wisdom literature is the Hebrew word chokmah, chokmah is the way that's said. It just means skill for living. So when you see the word wisdom in the Bible, it just means skill for living. It could be an apprenticed skill, like a, a, a craftsman or, or art, or it could simply mean like being a street smart Christian, you know, that kind of an idea. That's all it means. So just think of it as a biblical version of Liam Neeson in the Taken movies, right? What did that guy have? He had a particular set of skills, that he had acquired over a very long career, right? That's kind of what we're doing here. It's, the, it's supposed to be the same, students of Hokmah. That's part of our lives as God's people. They're not given to us by some magical incantation or downloaded into a program into our brain like the Matrix or something. No, it's hard work. It's tedious, painstakingly and meticulously learned over time. And if that sounds like work, if that sounds hard, it's because it is. Because true Christianity at its core is not pies in the skies and, and all this type of stuff. It's, it's hard work. It's taking ideas, practically applying them, and living them out consistently on a daily basis. Practical biblical living requires us to focus on what God wants and then to make the deliberate choice to do those things until they become second nature. And we don't have to think about them quite so much anymore. That's God's design for us as Christians. Okay, so let's dive into this passage today about wisdom. Now, you've already heard it in one of my favorite translations, the Passion Bible. Now, I want to read it to you from the message paraphrase. And between the two of those, it's really clear what James is trying to say, okay? So I think it'll be up here on the screen as well. So I'm going to start reading. Do you want to be counted wise to build a reputation for wisdom? Here's what you do. Live well, live wisely, live humbly. It's the way you live, not the way you talk, that counts. Mean-spirited ambition is not wisdom. Boasting that you are wise isn't wisdom. Twisting the truth to make yourself sound wise isn't wisdom. 
It's the furthest thing from wisdom. It's animal cunning and uh, devilish plotting. Whenever you're trying to look better than others or get the better of others, things fall apart and everyone ends up at each other's throats. Have you ever been in that situation before? Real wisdom, God's wisdom, begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It's gentle. It's reasonable. Overflowing with mercy and blessings, not hot one day and cold the next, not two-faced. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoy its results only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other. That can be hard work, right? Treating each other with dignity and with honor. Amen? Amen. That's the word of the Lord for sure. Smack, smack, over and over. (laughs) Welcome to the book of James, right? So let's take a a little bit of time to break this down. It's pretty simple. But like I said, the book of James is not something anyone particularly wants to hear, but it, it is reality. So let's unpack this a bit. So right off the bat, one of the most important words in the Bible is staring us in the face, and that word is good. The word is good. From the beginning of the Bible, God is hashtagging events and people as good. We just assume that means some type of uh, moral goodness or some type of innocence, like, you know, oh, that's a good person, right? Uh, but that's not really what it means. It means more than that. So in the book of Genesis, the original Hebrew where God describes that he's created everything and it's good actually means this. It means productive. It means meaningful. It means fruitful. And we see this used over and over again in the Bible. Isaiah, uh, God wants Israel to be the good vine, the fruitful vine, right? Or Jesus calls himself the what type of shepherd? The good shepherd, right? Not just any old shepherd. The good shepherd, right? A productive, a hardworking, put in a hard day's work shepherd. That's what the Bible considers good. How about the father as the good father, not just any old father, the good father. So all of this is hearkening back to Genesis where God cre- what God creates is good. And here we hear it in the Passion Version of the Bible. It says, if your life is full of wisdom, it will be fruitful, good, fruitful, right? The message translation says to live well, something, uh, a result that's produced that was better than existed before, So James is saying that when we stand back, we reflect on the decisions uh, that we make, the life choices that we make. We need to be able to know why we made the decision that we made, not just, oh, I just made this decision, right? We need to know why, and then we need to be able to pinpoint the good result that came from that decision. That's intentional biblical living. Now, this is a little off the beaten path, but I want to pass along some kind of practical uh, life advice Um, that I try to follow and I try to help my family follow. I call it the five and five drill. Some people call it different things, but here's the basic gist of it, which is life decisions that will be forgotten. In five minutes, you can treat them like that. They're not a big deal. Make your decision. Move on with things, right? An off-the-cuff decision that really has no lasting significance, so you can treat it like that. Let it be what it is, which is just a five-minute decision. It's not that big a deal. But the decisions that affect you for five years, the other five, five years down the road should also be treated as such. If it's a significant decision, put the time in. The same amount of time in that you spend buying that random 
soap off Amazon that you spent three days researching, which is the best one, you know, kind of put the same thing into your actual life decisions that really, really, truly matter. Decisions that affect you five years down the road should be treated like five-year decisions or long-term decisions. Now, Amber, my wife, and I do this drill a lot at our house with four kids, busy lives, a lot of stuff going on, busy careers. We have a lot of decisions that have to be made quickly, but intentionally and uh, 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 smartly, intelligently, yeah. Uh, In the end, that's what you have to do. So sometimes one of us think we're dealing with maybe a five-minute decision, and the other one will be like, oh, now wait a minute, this is a bigger decision. The lasting implications of this tiny decision will affect us years and years down the road. Have you ever had decisions like that? It's the little ones you think that aren't a big deal and then they end up being a really big deal. That's the ones, right? And so, and sometimes the other one, we try to think it's maybe a bigger decision than it is and we're like, you know, that's really not that big of a decision. Let's just live our life. We're not gonna put a little energy into this. We're just gonna, we're just gonna make the decision. And so we treat five-minute decisions as five-minute and five-year decisions as five-year. Now, there's a lot of ways to mess this five-and-five thing up. You probably have already thought of some ways, so here's a couple I thought of. If you treat every decision like a five-minute decision, how's your life going to go? Pretty poorly, you know, or at least you could have some good uh, stories at cocktail parties about this one time I made this horrible decision. So if you're looking for good entertainment, it's a great way to go. If you're looking for a quality life, probably not the best way to go, Right? So what about another person that treats every decision, no matter what, as a five-year decision? You know these uptight people? You know these people? I used to be this guy, and then a bunch of stuff happened, and I'm like, I guess I'll just not worry about it too much. And then I got I relaxed a little bit more. But say you're, say you're that guy. You're your five-year five decision about everything. That means you're going to procrastinate because you're not going to know what to do. You're going to miss windows of opportunity. And then your blood pressure is going to be really high because you're stressed out all the time. I have a friend, he says, don't be that guy. So, you know, don't be that guy. Don't be that person, right? But here's the worst scenario is this. When you can't tell the difference between a five-minute decision and a five-year decision, now that'll mess you up. That'll mess you up big time. That's the worst type of decision-making. And that's what James is trying to warn us against. He says the way that we live is, is not what we say as much as what we do. So how do we live? Well, we make quality decisions, not just one time, over and over and over and over again, because that leads to a quality life. One good quality decision is not the goal. A myriad of quality decisions is the goal. Next, James gets really specific more about how we live. He starts kind of sucker punching us here, you know? Good job, James. What a Made me feel horrible, but he kind of gets it to us. So in a world that worships competition and being on top, being the best, James tells us not to confuse ambition with wisdom. They are not the same. The most confident among us are rarely the wisest. Have y'all figured this out? <laughs> Usually they're, they're confident because they hadn't been through enough to make them not confident <laughs> anymore, right? They're not the same. They're rarely the wisest. And then he goes on to say that telling everybody about your wisdom and about your experience is a dead giveaway. You're not wise. You probably don't have either one, (laughs) right? Okay, have you ever been around those types of folks? Folks that redirect the conversation back to their personal experience or their past accomplishments, those folks are tipping their hands. You gotta stay away from those folks. They're not your friends. They really are not. And then James starts really messing with us, particularly us Tallahassee folks. 
He gives us a bet. He doesn't mention Tallahassee, but I kind of feel like he might be talking about Tallahassee right in here. So uh, he says that we have an image issue in Tallahassee, actually all over. But it's not the one that you think we have. It's not because we have a bad image that we need to clean up or have a PR company manage. Our problem is the opposite. In our city, we value propping up our own importance through civics, through academia, through political uh, uh, posturing, whatever the case may be, to make us seem more important than we actually are. What we need is a reality check in our world. James actually tells us to stop being, he uses the term phony. Phony. He says that subtly twisting the truth to make ourselves or putting a spin on your life to present an image to someone is not wisdom. It's the furthest thing from wisdom. Now, the kid version of this, I'll I'll spare you the R-rated version, but I think you can probably figure it out. The kid version of this is we would call this baloney. We would call this malarkey if you're from South Georgia which is where I'm from, but, you know, ouch, right? That's right. He says that one of the most basic tenets of Tallahassee philosophy in image curating is, quote, devilish plotting, and it appeals to the animalistic instincts in us. It's embarrassing. It makes God want to smack his forehead when we do that kind of stuff because it's the opposite of who God is, right? In the message versions, James describes the end result of that Behavior. He says things fall apart. Everyone ends up at each other's throats, right? Now, am I giving Tallahassee a bad time? Well, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I live here. I got my stripes. I got my Tallahassee card, so I can criticize a little bit. But overall, this is just a, this is just a human thing. It's a human thing overall. Any city is just made up of people, and people have to choose what values matter to them. And if we're choosing values that are antithetical to what God wants then God calls it in the book of James. He says it's false wisdom. It's devilish wisdom. It's not godly wisdom. So I want to teach you a game this morning um, so that you can kind of play this game to help you along the way with this idea. So everyone has a yearning to be noticed. Everyone has a desire to be admired. Everyone has a desire to be recognized for the good work that they do, right? That's normal. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's not godly to bring the attention to yourself. It's not godly to bring the attention to yourself. Well, I deserve to be given credit. Well, you probably do. But what are we doing here? Are we, are we following worldly wisdom or are we following godly wisdom? You know, make up your mind. Choose the, the pill to swallow and then, and then roll with it. So it's not godly wisdom to bring that attention to yourselves. It's much more meaningful when other people recognize you unprompted, right? That's when you know it's real. That's when you know that what you do lines up with what you believe because other people can see it, okay? So when we allow God to spotlight us, instead of bringing the spotlight to ourselves, we're gonna be in a better place. So we've got a two-part game here this morning. The first part, when you're in conversation with people. Do your best not to reference your own past successes, expertise, educations, and just withhold your opinion. You know why? Because everybody's got an opinion. Y'all know those phrases that we're all thinking of right now. Everybody's got an opinion. No one necessarily needs yours. And there may be someone around you that's more qualified to give that opinion. Wait for others to recognize those things in you and give you the space to speak and to give input. That's when you can 
people really will, will pay attention and start to listen. Wait for others to bring those qualities and draw them into the light. Two things will happen. First, you'll be amazed at how difficult it is to not talk and give your opinion talk about yourself. The harder it is, you've been talking about yourself more. If it's hard, if it's easy, yeah, you probably don't talk about yourself that much, but you'll be surprised at how difficult that can be. And then secondly, when that recognition does happen, it's meaningful. It's meaningful, it's lasting, it's permanent, it's something you can say, okay, the people around me see me as this type of person. Okay, second part of the game is this. Do the same thing for other people. When you're in that group, highlight the talents, the qualities, the expertise of other people over your own. Go out of your way to lift people up instead of handing it your own talents. When you think of a, this is something that I love to do with people, is when you think of a compliment about someone, rather than keeping it to yourself in that moment, tell them. Tell people if you think, we, have, we think nice things about people all the time, but rarely do we voice those things to people. So break that habit of not voicing them. When you think of a compliment, tell somebody. If you're thinking of, about someone and how well they handled a situation, dude, text them. Text them. Let them know, hey, I was just thinking about you about this. And I admire the way that you handled this. I want you to know it encouraged me. I hope you're having a good day. And they'll be like, what the? And then they'll be like, oh, man, that's awesome. Thank you. You never know what people need to hear in that moment. It's a good game to play. Play it until it becomes second nature. Do it so much that it becomes to be reflective of how you handle yourself around people, how you encourage people. So back to the book of James. In verse 17 and 18, James kind of flips the script here. He starts talking about what the wisdom of God looks like, not so much the things not to do, but the things to do. He says, a life built on the wisdom of God is first of all characterized by getting along with others. That's the message translation. The Passion Version says peace-loving, peace-loving. I love that word, peace-loving. Someone who loves peace, and then goes, step, step, goes a step further, works to create peace in those situations that they're involved in. James then says that we are to be gentle and reasonable. Gentle and reasonable. Again, how we approach situations, how we approach situations makes all the difference. It's much more important than what we say. Sometimes how we say what we say is what makes or breaks a conversation or a relationship or a connection with someone. So if we approach things as kind-hearted, solutions-oriented, and we encourage people, we will make headway in life. I'm going to say those again. Kind-hearted, right? Solutions-oriented. A lot of people talk just to talk, or they rehash problems, or they don't, have, they don't help find bridges to peace, avenues to peace. And that's what God is calling us to do. Kind-hearted, solution-oriented encouragers will make headway in life. We'll have deep relationships and we'll have a better quality life all around. If we see someone as competition, someone to step over on our way to the top, we're going to wreak havoc in our lives. We're not going to do much to them. We're going to mess up our life, though, if we approach things that way. Now, notice it doesn't say reasonable. It does not say logical or rational. You notice that difference? You can put forward a logical solution and absolutely destroy a relationship. Or, or a, I don't know if you've ever done that. I've done, hey, this is the logical solution, and then boom, everything just blows up. Because we're not talking about logic. We're talking about people. People are not logical, right? We know that, right? We're not talking about logic here. The word reasonable 
doesn't have so much to do with the idea of reason like the Greek philosophical idea. It just means finding a path that that promotes peace while affirming the dignity of others and their view of the situation. doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but it does mean that you have to honor them and you have to respect them and you have to understand where people come from and why they do the things that they do and then engage in dialogue that comes to a peaceful, God-centered solution from there. The Passion Version, for that reasonable, it actually says considerate, considerate. So here we are back at the five and five rule. Is this a considerate, reasonable opinion that brings a peaceful solution that five years from now we can be proud of? There you go. That's how you do what you do. We can't predict the future, but we all know how to sit down, think through, and plan for the best outcome with something. Now, that doesn't always mean that it's going to be the most lucrative, the most uh, profitable deal. It also doesn't mean that it's going to be the most popular deal. Oftentimes, the most godly examples or most godly solutions are not the one that are going to get you the most likes on Instagram. It's not the way the world works. You have to decide what you want. Do you want a popularity contest to be won? Or do you want God-honored, time-led decisions that you know are going to bring about a quality life? And I'm just saying, I mean, this isn't me. I'm just, this is what James says. So y'all don't get mad at me. Get, get mad at James. I'm just telling you what he says. So in the end, the best decision is always the decision that reflects God's commands to love him and to love each other. That's the litmus test. If you ever wonder where you should start, start right there. Is this loving God? Is this honoring God? And is this loving and honoring the people around me? Well, they don't deserve it. Well, the Bible says nothing about anyone deserving the love of God, right? That's the litmus test. That's where you start. And then James gets right back to that use of the word good. He says our decision should be full of good fruit, right? Faithfulness, productivity, meaningfulness. And he says our, uh, we're to intimate, intimate the Father, imitate God. That after we do something with wisdom, we should be able to stand back, look at the progress and say, yeah, that's the right move. That was a quality decision. I'm going to do a bunch more of those in a row so this keeps going. We get this train rolling, right? That's the way that works. And the last thing I want to point out to you is where James says that we're not to be hot one day, cold the next. We're not supposed to be worldly wisdom-centered and then God wisdom-centered another day, wishy-washy, that kind of an idea. That's just a way of saying be consistent. I heard a long time, uh, actually a pastor heard a long time ago say, consistency is the key to life. Have y'all ever thought about that? It's, it does matter what you do, but it matters how many times you do the right thing sequentially to create a good life. You can do something once. Yay, woo, good job. One time doesn't cut it. It has to be consistent over and over and over again. Good quality decisions consistently laid out one after another to create a better life on the other side. And that's probably the most important lesson in here is be consistent. If you're going to jump on the Jesus train, and jump on all the way, all the way in every area of your life. And that consistency of, well, I did that for three months. Right. That's just three months. Check back in three years. Takes time. A long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson says. That's what it looks like in the end. Now, we're going to, like I said earlier, we're not downloading matrix programs or magical incantations. Don't work. Right? So... 
Are we going to go to sleep one night and then wake up? You got, you know, your saint whoever, right? When you wake up, it's not happening. No, that doesn't happen. That's not the truth of what God's teaching us here. That's why people don't like this book of a Bible. There's no magic bullets here. There's not. It tells us to read. It tells us to memorize what God looks like, what his way looks like, and how he wants us to behave. Make quality decisions that reflect that. I really want to do this, but the Bible tells me to do that. I'm, going to, I'm just going to do what the Bible says. And then be consistent with applying those decisions over your life. Over time, that consistency will make things happen. Now, does that sound like work again? Yeah, it's, uh, that sucks. It sounds horrible, right? It's because it does. But anytime that, I mean, when you're dealing with someone who's out of shape like me, if I go back to the gym... I'm going to hurt for a while before I get in shape to handle the things that I need to handle in the weight room. This is the same way. If you're not living this way, dude, it hurts. It hurts the first time and the second time and the third time. It hurts until it gets better and there's a consistent life pattern of habit that is different. God calls us daily to reflect on our actions, figure out which decisions have those long-term consequences, the five for five, right? Which are the five minutes, which are the five years? And reflect his wisdoms, wisdom in the decisions that we make. And with everything, practice makes perfect. That's right. The more we intentionally align our decisions with the descriptions we read about here in the book of James and elsewhere, the more we see the qualities of godly wisdom reflected and blossom in our relationships, in our families, and in our church. Amen? Amen. I didn't beat y'all up too much, right? Y'all okay? No one's, I don't see anybody crying, so good job. So I'm all done. We're actually going to flip over to our new lead pastor, Scott, has sent us a video for today. So we're going to watch that.